the program must be very welcoming. Uh, because if Jesus were there, stand, sitting right there with us, he would want people to come into his home. And so because of that, the program, it can't be off-putting. We can't shut doors. We're not going to search people. We can't be rude. So it has to be very open and welcoming. So that is that is the first step in a church, uh, in a church security program, the most important. And unfortunately, I see the opposite as I talk to churches. There's an idea that church security looks like security with the rest of the world. Well, it doesn't. It's like anything else in the church. It should be very different than the way the rest of the world is doing it. Public mass shootings account for a tiny fraction of the country's gun deaths, but they're uniquely terrifying because they occur without warning in the most mundane places. Most of the victims are chosen not for what they've done, but simply for being in the wrong place. According to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit that tracks shootings in the U.S., there were 340 mass shootings in 2018. Mass shootings specifically accounted for 373 deaths, 1,346 injuries in 2018. 2019 is not immune to these horrible happenings. A drive-by shooting spree in Odessa and Midland, Texas on August 31st with seven people killed and 24 wounded. A shooting in a historic district of Dayton, Ohio on August 4th with nine people killed and 27 injured. And a shooting in Walmart in El Paso, Texas on August 3rd with 22 people killed and at least 24 wounded. It was the deadliest shooting of the year so far. Mind-boggling to think we can't even go to the store or our places of worship without the fear or thought of having an active shooter on the scene. Well, today we're going to talk on Mid-South Viewpoint with an expert when it comes to security. Michael Mann is the owner of Masada Consulting. He joins us from our Nashville studio. Michael, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Thank you. You are a former member of FAST, which is Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, whose specialty was deploying quickly to U.S. government installations where they were under the threat of attack. Uh, You also have a lengthy background in military, law enforcement, and a high-level security background. So you've been around a little bit when it comes to security and law enforcement. Yes, I have. A little while, anyway. Do you remember the first time you pulled the trigger on a firearm? Uh, I do. Uh, actually, I was probably 11, 12 years old. My stepfather had taken me rabbit hunting, and I remember the first time pulling the trigger. And really, back then, I wasn't really into guns, really wasn't into hunting. And then, of course, after joining the Marine Corps and going into Fast Company, that's when I got bit by the bug, I, I guess you could say, and, and really got into shooting and guns, and it was part of the job. So, yeah, probably first time 11, 12 years old, and then later on joined the Marine Corps, and, of course, that became part of my career, and it, and it still is. Was it during your youth or in the military that you learned the proper use, the safety, and respect for firearms? My, no, my stepfather, he retired uh, as a police officer, and he was a Marine Corps veteran also, combat veteran, and so he'd been around guns his whole life. He grew up on a farm, uh, then uh, joined the Marine Corps, went to combat, came back, was a police officer. So he'd been around guns for a long time and had a very serious respect uh, for how dangerous firearms are. And so, no, he, very beginning, would, you know, taught me the four basic rules that, you know, they're always loaded, we treat them as such, don't point anything we're not willing to destroy, that our trigger finger needs to be straight, and all we, we always need to be sure what's, uh, what, you know, what the target is, what's beyond it, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, I, you know, at a very young age, when uh, he would take me out to hunt, he taught me very, very early just how serious 
guns are and what the purpose of a gun is and how to use those instruments. I'm so thankful I've had that same experience, too, in learning that proper respect is so important when it comes to firearms. Um, what motivated you, Michael, to join the Marines? And you might have just already answered the question when you talked about your stepfather. Yeah, that, that was it. I was uh, raised by him, and he was in the Marine Corps. My mother married him when I was about eight. So I started to hear about the Marine Corps and about that age, and we would watch the old you know, Marine Corps movies together like the D.I. and Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. And so any Marine Corps movie or program that would come on, we would when I was younger, we would watch that together. And he'd, he'd kind of tell me stories about the Marine Corps. And uh, he didn't talk much about combat, but uh, that experience, but he did tell me about it. And so he was a police officer at the time also. So I, I got really wrapped up in all of it and, and kind of modeled my background and my, my career path around what he did. Was there a time in boot camp when you're in the Marines? I can't imagine. I've heard stories of those of my friends who were in the Marines that you said, what have I got myself into? Yeah, the, yeah. as soon as you get off the bus <laughs> and you get there and you get off the yellow footprints and you're screaming. About that time, I thought, well, maybe I, I wish I was smart enough to join the Air Force. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. And you think that the entire time you're there until graduation, pretty much. <laughs> I think Air Force has nicer quarters, I believe. <laughs> no, no, yeah, nicer quarters and nicer people in general. So. <laughs> well, when were you convinced of your need for Jesus Christ? After I got out of the Marine Corps, I dated uh, one of the first girls I ever that I dated when I got out was a Christian. She was a believer. I had not spent much time in church and started to go to church with her. Uh, Mid-20s is when I started kind of understanding uh, who, who God is, who Jesus Christ is. You know, I had no idea growing up around, you know, away from that. And so was kind of awakened by, uh, one, his love for me and for everybody else and the importance of that relationship. So it, it was uh, quite a long time ago. I'm not a young guy anymore. What has changed most about Michael Mann since following Jesus? I think one is the focus on uh, what I've been given, uh, skills. I hate to use the word gifts, especially when we start talking about human beings, because we, we mess everything up so much. But I think, you know, there's a reason why I was put on the path that I was placed upon. And uh, several years ago, that path switched to protecting faith-based organizations. And so the biggest change, especially the last several years, my involvement, you know, wanting to protect houses of worship and private Christian organizations, just using what I've been given over the last 30 years and trying to communicate that and, and, uh, and give that to those places that are trying to spread the word of Jesus Christ. I think that's the biggest change. Wow, that's a good word, Michael. You know, in addition to your background in the military, you served with the Metro Nashville Police as a patrolman, SWAT team member, and later with the Special Investigative Division. You helped protect the mayor of Nashville. Now, after leaving the Nashville Police Force, I understand that you joined the Special Response Team at the U.S. Department of Energy. What was your job assignment, and why did you decide to pursue that direction? Yeah, I spent about 10 years at Metro as a police officer, and really, uh, fast company I learned in the Marine Corps about protection, and I really liked that, but, you know, I had a lot of influence from my stepfather about, you know, about being a police officer, and so I decided to leave the Marine Corps and come back and, and do police work and join the police department, and it was a kind of a misunderstanding. I thought the police department was going to be like the Marine Corps, that police officers were the camaraderie, the friendships, the the ability to make really, really deep uh, or gain really, really deep relationships, and, you know, could, you know what you do in the military shoot a lot and work out and hang out with your buddies and that's really not what police work's about so i missed that and then I, what i really missed was protection like providing protection 
for people. That's what fast really is. You jump on an airplane and you're going to go, you may go to the Middle East, you may go to Central America, wherever there's a need, you're going to jump on an airplane or helicopter and you're going to provide protection for Americans. Sometimes those are civilians, sometimes those are other service members. And I really like that. And I, I, there was a misunderstanding. I thought that's what police work really was about. And it's not. You know, police work is very reactive. You know, we live in the greatest country in the world. So we have this wonderful thing called our government's called a republic or, or what's left of it. And so um, it was just a, I, I really didn't understand that the police are not necessarily there to protect the public. And not, that's what I really wanted to do. And so that's what uh, that's what after. So 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, I, I decided I wanted to go back into protection work. And so a job came open with the Federal Protective Forces there. I you know, went in, went through the testing process pretty quickly, did very well, and, uh, and I got right into protecting facilities and people and, uh, and spent the next six years uh, doing that and moved up very, very quickly. Right. And after that, leaving that work in the U.S. government, you went into the private sector of government-regulated nuclear and chemical facilities, which I find quite fascinating where you had the opportunity to go to Israel. Did you learn a whole new level of security from the Israelis? Absolutely. You know, they do it very differently. They're very small. You know, Israel's about the size of New Jersey. Um, their mindset is very different than the Western world. They faced uh, uh, challenges that we are just now over the last 20 years kind of figuring out that we face today. So, so yes, I learned, uh, number, really what I learned was just how different they are about the the way that they think, uh, why they do security the way that they do it, which is, you know, it's, it's very, um, a lot of it's in your face. It's very, you know, it's very overt, um, very different than the way we, we do things here. And so, so yeah, just, uh, you know, uh, it's the mindset piece of it. So very, very differently. They think about security very, very differently than we do. Personal testimony, I spent uh, two trips in Israel last year with Bot Radio Network. I had never felt safer. I was apprehensive. It was my first time to go because you hear news stories. But just being there on the ground, meeting the Israeli people and seeing, you know, how they are structured and each uh, Israeli required to serve in their military. And they're all very trained and they know how to deal with threatening situations as a society as a whole, which is so important. All this experience and background, Michael, that you've had seems to be foundational when you started this company called Masada Consulting. I went to Masada when I was in Israel. So, you know, you've been to the top. Did you walk up or did you take the tram? Well, they had the walk up was closed, (laughs) thankfully, because I have an excuse now. Did you walk up? I did, yes, sir. (laughs) It is a walk, I can tell you that. I didn't walk, but I just saw the walk. I took the tram up, but what an incredible experience. Talk about that for you. Just uh, as as I, you know, you hear the history. You know, it's kind of like, it's probably you know, it's kind of like their Alamo. You know, the history behind Masada, and you know, it took four years for the Romans, or you know, probably at the time it was probably more like Syrians and and you know, people that were in that in the area at the time. But anyway, so it took four years for the for the Roman army. Uh, when you look at the time when uh, the Scari took over Masada, it, it took a long time for them to get to them and to get into the compound. And so as I'm standing there, so I've now, I've got this extensive physical security background working for the Department of Energy, protecting nuclear weapons facilities and managing large groups of forces and then designing programs for the commercial nuclear sector. You know, I'd finished graduate school. I had a, you know, have a master's degree in this security field. And I, I look at the history of Masada and I'm looking at this fortress and I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is the picture of a physical protection system. You know, it. All physical protection systems can be defeated because they're designed by human beings, so they're fallible. 
But all the elements in physical protection were there, and it's why it took the Roman army so long to go up and, and to take that fortress back uh, from the group of Jews that, that, that held it for so long. Yeah, and there's a misnomer, too, and I guess you probably are aware of that fact that the Jews that were defending that uh, wound up committing suicide. And there's historical evidence that we had an Israeli archaeologist. matter of fact, our archaeologist guy's husband is the one who excavated Masada originally. He's an Israeli top-notch archaeologist, and he said that proof in the remains of that site shows that they fought until death. They stood there and fought for their very lives. Yep, absolutely, which, you know, which their motto, you know, again, never again. And so, yeah, obviously politically throughout the years, it was probably uh, advantageous to the Romans and the and the uh, the governments that ruled Israel at the time to say that these people committed suicide. But yes, that's we're finding out that that is not true and that those that those uh, Jews, including women and children, fought into the death. So this was the name you came up with for your company, Masada Consulting. Yes, so it's Hebrew for fortress, and it's not that it's perfect. Every system can be defeated, but the history of Masada itself and the idea of what a physical protection system is, uh, that's where the idea came from. And I had a, when I was in Israel, uh, one of the the group I was with at Tel Aviv University, uh, and it was there was a private uh, private Israeli consulting firm there. I, I met a guy an Israeli who served in the IDF and served in, in government protective services for Israel for years. Brought, I brought him back over to the United States for some seminar work later on, and we were at dinner in Columbia, South Carolina, one night. My wife was with us, and we were talking, and we just started talking about Masada. And this is back in like 2012, 2013. And we, we were just, I just would have just a conversation with him. And I said, you know, if I ever started my own company, I would want to call it Masada. And he was like, well, tell me, why would you want to do that? And I had this explanation. And he just looked at me and was like, that's a wonderful idea. I've never thought of it like that. I was like, yeah, well, you know, that's what I want to do if I got. So anyway, that's that's oh, where the name came from in the history. I so. love that story. Well, Michael, shortly after Sandy Hook massacre, December 14, 2012, in Newtown, Connecticut, 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 children between 6 and 7 years old and six adult staff members. Upon that, a prominent Nashville private school reached out to you to implement training that could be deployed in the event of an active shooter. Uh, what was the first step in implementing such a program? Yeah, it was just, uh, so yeah, but, uh, I had a, a, a colleague that I was a police officer with, and his son went to school there, and he contacted me and said, hey, they're looking to uh, arm teachers, but they don't want that to be, like, you know, in the open. How do you do that? And so we happened to just come home for Christmas. We were living in South Carolina at the time, and I visited with the school, and the first part was just uh, just asking questions. It had not been done in Nashville before. Nobody really knew how to do it. And so I've been dealing with regulated facilities for several years, and so I'm not an attorney, but I understand the Code of Federal Regulations and what, uh, what you know, when you talk about security requirements in the government, what that looks like. So just very quickly, I looked at the state of Tennessee's requirements for uh, arming private institutions. That was, It was very simple. I uh, had a conversation with that uh, organization, that facility, about it and then told them that they should go through a very in-depth training program and how to keep that covert and how to keep that from the teachers and from the from the parents and then the other things that the physical protection program should include. And about six months later, they called me back and they decided that they wanted that program to be implemented and that's the start of Masada Consulting. Well, a lot of your clients has grown to include faith-based organizations, many are churches. What's your position, Michael, on how a church should address the issue of an active shooter on their campus, say, on any given Sunday? So first, and I learned this from the Israelis, 
It is not about response, which is what the United States and the people of this country are focused on, which is responding to something as it's happening or after it's occurred. Something I learned from the Israelis was it's all about prevention. It is what the problem looks like before it becomes a problem. That's how the Israelis and the Jews in their history have been successful. With a church, number one, the program has to fit in with the mission of the church. And what I mean by that is we can't lock doors. You can't search backpacks. You can't turn people away. The program must be very welcoming uh, because if Jesus were there sitting right there with us, he would want people to come into his home. And so because of that, the program, it can't be off-putting. We can't shut doors. We're not going to search people. We can't be rude. So it has to be very open and welcoming. So that's, that is the first step in a church, uh, in a church security program, the most important. And unfortunately, I see the opposite as I talk to churches. There's an idea that church security looks like security with the rest of the world. Well, it doesn't. It's like anything else in the church. It should be very different than the way the rest of the world is doing it. What about the issue of insurance and liability issues that churches need to consider when they're implementing such a response plan? If you're going to arm your church, you know, your security team, obviously you're going to have to have a conversation with the insurance company to, to let them know exactly what you're doing. More than likely, the insurance rates are going to go up. It's not going to stay the same, and there's going to be a long, drawn-out conversation with that insurance provider because obviously that creates, you know, that red flags pop up when a church tells the insurance company they're going to have armed people there protecting the church. But so, yes, if you're going to arm them, that conversation needs to come up with the insurance company. You need to address that. But I, I want you, as a gun person, I, you know, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand, I, I love the republic that we live in. I'm, a, I'm pro Second Amendment, but I want everybody that, that, that's going to listen to this guns do not prevent active shooters. A gun is a response tool, which is a function of a physical protection system. And if a shooter gets inside your building, you need probably need a gun to stop them. But prevention is about situational awareness and understanding what the problem looks like before it becomes a problem. Hence, again, why the Israelis have been so successful in what they do. Yeah. And what if churches desiring a response plan say they don't have members in their congregation who are active police officers or military trained members? I would tell you that I don't. I run a. I am a. Um, I am the risk manager or the security lead for a large uh, church uh, in Brentwood, Tennessee. I have 58 members. We have very few former law enforcement or military. In fact, uh, only two. The other 56 folks are just normal people. It is. It's. It is my. Uh, as I design programs, actually, I'm, I'm not really big on having former law enforcement or military people on the security team. Here's what, and, and I'm not saying not. Here's what I want on the security team. I want so, someone that loves the church, someone that's a believer, someone that enjoys fellowship with other Christians, someone that wants to go out and do things for the community, and someone who is there to spread the word of Jesus Christ. That is first. That's the first mission. Then we get into the security piece. So you don't have to have someone that was in the military or has any kind of law enforcement background. In fact, law enforcement officers really don't know much about protection. And unless you did something like Fast Company in the Marine Corps, military guys don't know that much about physical security. Uh, their job is to do other things. So unless the person has a background in physical security, um, a law enforcement military background is not necessary to design the program or actually to serve in that program. Um, the first thing I want is I want believers that love the church and want to protect the people that are there. There's a faith-based mission around the team. That's the first thing that I'm looking for. Should all members with concealed carry permits bring their guns to church each Sunday? 
I believe that, yeah, we live in a great country that allows us to do that. We, there's a reason why there were amendments, at, you know, uh, three or four years after the Constitution was developed. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know we've, we believe, or our founding fathers, who are much smarter than us, believe that that wasn't enough protection. And so we, uh, these amendments were developed. So, yes, I believe that if, you've, if you have the ability to carry a gun, uh, then, yes, carry it. Uh, that's something you're going to have to address if you have a plan in a church, um, because that could that could be an issue if there were ever a shooter. But absolutely, uh, this is the United States of America. We have a Second Amendment, and so if uh, if you have a carry permit and legally can do that, absolutely, I want people carrying in the church. Michael, do you believe a trained unarmed door greeter could have possibly diverted the shootings in one or more of these church situations that occurred? And if so, how? Yep. So here's what I believe. I believe that a person that is trained in what a problem looks like, what an active shooter, the cycle that that adversary goes through prior to the shooting, if that person is trained in that, I don't. That doesn't take three months. That takes about six hours or less. Um, if a person is trained in that and they are taught how to uh, actively engage uh, and with people, very specifically people that. Um, that might exhibit a very uh, specific behavior, then absolutely. Bad guys or the adversaries, these shooters, are not deterred by guns. They are deterred by what's known as a questioning attitude, and that is someone that's watching and looking and looking for certain behaviors or activities and and who is not afraid to go up and engage and, and ask about that or just go up and just have a conversation. Understand active shooters never just show up on Sunday, you know, 30 minutes before and say, I'm going to shoot up, uh, you know, I'm going to shoot the Baptist church, uh, church up down the road. There's a planning process that they have to go through. Every active shooter, in fact, a report from the FBI came out in 2018 that proves that 100% of all active shooters in the last 20 years have pre-planned the attacks. And that's, that's, there's no difference. If we go back to Cain and Abel, when we talk about Cain and Abel, that attack was planned. There was a grievance for whatever reason, right? Uh, and and Cain uh, took that rock and he killed his brother with it. With it, he he was premeditated. It was planned. It is no different today. Wow. And so you anyway. make a point because there was a case, and I'm trying to remember the exact location where a homeless man was denied food from a church food ministry. He was only denied because he was required to uh, receive a food package, I think, once a week, and he kept coming, and they just told him, you know, we have to be able to share this with others, too, so you only can receive one package per week. Well, he didn't like that, so he came back and shot the pastor and the church secretary. And, And I guess those kind of things, when you encounter people and have situations where you encounter someone having a bad experience, or maybe they don't like something you do, you might need to make a note. Yes, Absolutely. So, yeah, so you see something suspicious, ask the question, document that, and communicate that to the, uh, to the people that are in the church or to the safety team or security team that's there. Or even if you don't have it, if you're a, you know, the majority of churches in the United States of America have 100 people or less. So, you know, every church here is not a mega church. So if it's a small church and you don't have those resources, you're exactly right. Some sort of communication plan where if nothing, if nothing more than calling the police and reporting that to the police, and that way if you see the guy or the gal or, or person again, you can call the police right away and say, look, the person's here, and, and they can show up and then they can deal with it. So absolutely. Michael, what's the first thing that Masada Consulting does when a church contacts you for help? Masada goes out and they just talk to the person that, uh, so I talk to the person that, that has reached out to me to ask for assistance. And um, 
I'll go just walk around and have a conversation with uh, usually that safety team member or the person that's wanting to start the team, and then I uh, I suggest that there is also a meeting with the leadership. Uh, and I do that for the, the main reason is the leadership in the church must be 100% in with having the safety or security team. So the first thing is just to make contact with the person who is, uh, who's contacted me and ask what they think that they want and explain what we're talking about to them. And then the second is to convince them to get the leadership together, elders, the pastor, any stakeholder that is going to have a part in, uh, in accepting this program and then uh, allowing me to explain what a safety or security team looks like and, uh, and communicate what the mission should look like, the overall mission. How prepared do you find most churches when it comes to dealing with issues like identifying hazards and things of a medical nature, such as learning CPR? These type situations are probably more likely to occur instead of an active shooter situation. Yeah, I think, in fact, I just uh, there's a, a large church in uh, Nashville and Green Hills that, I, that I'll go in and do training for three or four times a year, and I just did some medical training for them a couple of weeks ago. And I, I think that uh, most churches, that exists, that training you know exists very specifically in the children's ministries. But what I find is that that training expires, the cards expire. Um, you know, it's not a standardized uh, thing that is done every every two years, and so um, so the biggest piece of that I, I think is there is no standardization. The, the folks that a lot of times it's a volunteer keeping up with that, and that volunteer leaves or they they go off of that team, and so that kind of falls off the radar. So I think it exists in in most churches that that uh, function does, but a lot of times it just people forget about it, cards expire, and uh, and then uh, what happens is they figure out that 25 people need to be certified. Two years after everybody's cards expired, then they have to call somebody to do that. So that element's there, but a lot of times, it, it you know, it just kind of they just forget about it. So it's important to keep those certifications up to date, definitely. Absolutely. Well, I also heard that Facebook has utilized your expertise. Yes, for about a year and a half, I worked for Facebook. Uh, they were building these huge data centers throughout the world, and I was one of the first global security managers, first four uh, security managers hired to step in and to help them design those programs as they started to uh, to build those data centers. So, yes, I spent about a year and a half with Facebook wow. uh, helping helping with that. Michael, this has been great. Our time has slipped away on this edition of our program, but those wanting to learn more, churches to reach out to you to see about an active plan for their church for security and safety, what's the best way to contact you for consulting needs? Yes, uh, they can uh, send me an email, masadaconsulting at gmail.com. So M-A-S-A-D-A consulting at gmail.com. Um, or they, I've got a very, very small website. It's really just a, really a business card, and that's at masadaconsulting.org. It's just got my background and a way to contact me. And your background is <laughs> it's very long. I couldn't read everything uh-huh. on the show today. We'd probably take the whole time just reading your background, which is so impressive. And God has blessed you and skilled you and, and I'm going to say gifted you, you know, with this gift, not for Michael Mann, but to give back for his service and purpose. And that's what you're doing through Masada Consulting. Michael, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining Bot Radio Network today. Thank you, sir. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. Hey, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 